0: We are in another scene uh, with an angel. That's kind of the, the Christmas story. As we're working our way through, we've seen the angels visit to Zechariah, the angels visit to Mary, and today is the angels visit to Joseph. Uh, like Mary, Joseph lived in Nazareth, uh, lived in a very small town. Uh, like Mary, Joseph was uh, expecting probably kind of a, you know, just a simple quiet life. Uh, but like Mary, God had, had other plans, And so the story picks up from last week, and now we're jumping to the book of Matthew. And this is after Gabriel had visited Mary, uh, but before anyone had talked to Joseph about what was going on. So let me just read the first verse, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So I think we all know why this would be a, a challenging situation. Uh, for Joseph, who doesn't really know what's going on, if, if you take the words from the Holy Spirit out of that verse, uh, things don't look great for Mary and, and are very troubling for Joseph. Uh, everyone would have assumed that something, uh, you know, bad had happened and uh, they would have looked either to Joseph and Mary and wondered what exactly had been going on. And part of the reason uh, that People thought this way. In the next verse, we're going to see Joseph uh, called the husband of Mary. But you have to understand uh, that marriages and uh, and weddings worked a little differently. So back in the ancient Hebrew culture, uh, Joseph and Mary, as children, probably their their fathers would have gotten together and would have arranged a marriage. So they could have been engaged at a young age, like eight or nine years old, and that was just the agreement between the families. Look, later on, they're going to get married. Then when they are early teens, they would be betrothed to one another, uh, which is uh, a legally binding uh, process, meaning they are now actually considered husband and wife, but for about a year, uh, they would not live together or sleep together. Uh, During that year, usually the husband uh, would, you know, build a house for his wife and they would get ready and then the wedding would happen and they would consummate uh, the the marriage and they would go on with their lives. So right now we're in the in-between and so that's why uh, this, is, this is a challenging situation, because Mary is now showing, uh, she clearly is with child, and yet people know that they aren't really fully married yet. And so Joseph is trying to figure out what he should do, and in verse 19, we, we find out kind of where his thinking has got to. Uh, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now, that word divorce is because they were, they were legally bound together, even though they weren't fully married. And so it was still a significant thing. But Joseph was choosing uh, really the, the path of greatest integrity, but also uh, a kindness. He wasn't publicly exposing Mary, which would have been within his rights, but that would have brought uh, a lot of harsh consequences for her, probably. And he wasn't pretending that this child was his when it really wasn't his. So he was trying to find the middle ground. He was a just man, trying to weigh out what the word of God would want for him. And um, at this point, an angel appears. Now, this visitation is a little different uh, than the first ones because uh, we aren't told uh, the name of the angel. We can maybe assume it's Gabriel. We don't know for sure. And also, uh, the, uh, the angel appears in a dream. But the message that the angel brings is pretty much the same. Same message to Zechariah, to Mary, and to Joseph. All essentially the same thing. The Messiah is coming. And so let's look at the, the words of the angel themselves, verses 20 to 23. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So there's going to be three uh, points for our sermon this morning to kind of unpack this, Uh, but it's going to be organized this way. The first point is going to be uh, a big, overarching, massive kind of theological truth about God. And then the other two are going to be practical applications of how we should respond to that. Okay, so first point about God, second two is for us. And so here's the first point. God's providence is meticulous and always good. Okay, God's providence is meticulous and always good. So what is God's providence? Uh, To understand the word providence, I think it's helpful to know two words actually. One is sovereignty and one is providence. Uh, sovereignty is basically describes someone's area of authority or control. So a king or a queen, they are a sovereign because they have sovereignty over their kingdom. They, they, they rule over a certain area. In our day, you know, political leaders kind of have some level of sovereignty, some power, presidents, prime ministers, that, that sort of a thing. But in God's case, he is sovereign over the entire universe. Everything is created by him. Everything is owned by him. And so he's completely sovereign. But providence is applied sovereignty. So meaning it's, it's the intentional use of one's sovereign control for the good of the people. So when you hear providence, think uh, provide, right? A, a good king or a queen, what they do is they provide for the well-being of their people. And, and we, again, put that kind of on the shoulders of state leaders, national leaders to this day. But of course, not all uh, leaders who have sovereignty actually uh, provide well for their people. There's a lot of examples of, of sovereigns who are not providential. Uh, they're, they're in some way hindered. They're not actually ruling for the good of their people. There's lots of reasons for this. Uh, for example, it could just be that they're very wicked people, which is sadly often the case we see throughout history. Uh, Pharaoh, Stalin, Hitler, all people with, with sovereignty. They have control, but they're not using it for the good of the people. Uh, and you see at times that people protest. That's what's going on in Iran right now. They're protesting those who have sovereign control over them, but are not doing it for their good. They're protesting oppression to women, oppression, freedom, all the violence. They're saying this is, this is not actually for our good. Uh, that's a hindrance to any providence in the lives of the people. If you have a wicked leader. Maybe the kingdom, though, uh, is poor. The the leader is good, but there's just enough resources in the kingdom. Uh, This is often the case with third world countries. They just don't have, they be good leaders, but they just don't have the economy to actually provide well for the people. It could be, though, that the leaders uh, have good intentions, but they just aren't wise enough to actually make it happen. So in our country, uh, we are probably bristling uh, a bit, irritated perhaps by the Bank of Canada, raising interest rates yet again. And yet the point of that, if I understand uh, economics, which is, uh, I'm not sure I do, but what I understand is that it's to keep the inflation rate low, right? We want inflation to simmer down, so we have to raise interest rates, so the economy kind of settles down. Uh, if you want to see this going bad in the opposite direction, you can look at Turkey, where the president of Turkey does not believe in raising interest rates, and so their inflation this year is uh, 85%. So imagine... Like I go and get a banana, I'm like 7% higher. This is crazy. Imagine the, the crushing nature of an economy where the inflation is just skyrocketing. So there's someone who has the good intentions for his country, but seems like economically is not really working out well. The last, I think, reason why certain sovereigns wouldn't actually be able to provide well for their people is simply that they don't have enough power to make it happen. And this would be in cases where it's just outside of their control. Uh, Natural disasters, wars, certain things where a sovereign, a leader is like, I want to help, but I, I can't control those kinds of things. I mention all of that to acknowledge what we kind of know to be true, that human beings are limited in the way that they lead and the power they have, but to contrast the fact that God has none of these limitations. That he is sovereign, but also has the power to make it all happen. He is good, he is loving, he is wise, He is wealthy beyond measure. He is all-powerful. So there's, there's no extenuating circumstance where God is not able to provide well for his people. Which is why I use those two kind of descriptors. Meticulous, meaning that every single detail of God's sovereign control, the entire universe, every single thing within it, he is using for good. That's why I use the word good. Always good. Because sometimes we doubt that it's always good. Indeed, it is. Now, where do we see this? In the text is the next question. Why are we talking about providence? Why are we talking about this? Because we see it very clearly in the story of Christmas that this is how God operates. Look at verse 21. We see here the provision of God for his people. It says of Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. See, Jesus is the ultimate provision and care that God's sovereign rule provides. In him, is the salvation that we need against the greatest threat that all of us have in our lives. And that threat is sin. Sin is the thing which brings not only hardship and difficulty, but death itself into our lives. Not just momentary death, but eternal death in hell. And all of us are under that threat as sinners. But the answer from God is to bring a savior. Jesus is the one who provides an answer because he lived a life of perfect uh, moral purity and then went to the cross and died on our behalf, atoning for our sin, closing the door to death, and opening the door to life. In Ephesians, we're told that in Jesus, we have every spiritual blessing. Everything that we can need: Life, forgiveness, peace, identity, security, everything is in him. So he's the greatest good that any sovereign could bring to their people. And this is at the center of the Christmas story. So we're going to come back to it again and again and again. The angels keep saying it. Jesus is the Savior, the good news to the people of the world. But I want to show you the meticulous nature of God's providence also here in the story of Christmas. And I want to make us see clearly that this provision of God, it didn't just happen the night that Mary gave birth. It wasn't just a momentary or kind of a happenstance thing that God just had this idea. It was, it was thousands of years in the making. So the first layer of God's sort of meticulous providence is seen in the fulfillment of prophecy. This is what the angel said. Look again at verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's a quote from Isaiah, Isaiah 714, which means 750 years earlier, the uh, prophet Isaiah spoke these words from God and the people at the time would have been like, wow, at some point a virgin? A virgin? It's going to give birth to a child, I'm not sure how that's going to happen, and the, the child will somehow bring the presence of God to his people. No one understood how it would happen, but it was there as a hopeful uh, note for the people of God. They could look forward to this happening, that God would be at work. What it tells us is that the providence of God, like his care, it was, it was going the whole time. It wasn't just a moment, an evening, a night, just the Christmas story. It was tied to everything that God had been doing in the past. He clearly had a plan and was making things unfold at the right time. So the meticulous nature of his providence, here's the thing to understand. It doesn't just mean that the entire plan of God actually happens. What it means is that everything in our lives, in the world, is part of that plan. That, that, that every single detail, every single event in our life is always serving the purposes of God. And just help us see this kind of meticulousness and how it's tied into the birth of Jesus, I want to go back even farther in the Old Testament to a story that we kind of, um, we always associate with God's providence. And that is the story of Joseph. Not Mary and Joseph, but Joseph with the coat, the cool coat, right? That Joseph... And if you know that story, many of us do, uh, which is, uh, I'll briefly summarize, that Joseph was kind of an entitled youngest brother of 12, and um, he, uh, well, the brothers didn't like him, they were very jealous of him, he didn't help the situation by the way that he acted, Uh, but the brothers responded very violently, very jealously. They beat him up, sold him into slavery, and Joseph found himself in Egypt uh, as uh, a slave for many, many years. Uh, Worked his way up in in a certain household, Potiphar's household. uh, Things seemed to be going well and then got accused uh, of sexual assault, unfairly accused. He was put back in the dungeon for many, many years until uh, finally uh, he was able to use his God-given gift of interpreting dreams to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. And the interpretation was, look, there's going to be a famine coming. And and Pharaoh hears what's going to happen, seven years of, of plenty, seven years of famine. And all of a sudden he's put in charge of Egypt. At the perfect time to save not only all the Egyptians, but all of his own family who come to Egypt begging for food. And the line which uh, summarizes the whole point of the story of Joseph is found in Genesis 50, verse 20, as for you, this is Joseph speaking to his brothers, right, who are so upset and repentant for all the evil they did, but he sees it from God's point of view. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So notice here again the theme of provision. The brothers intended evil for Joseph, but God used their evil plans to provide for the people of Egypt and for Joseph's own family uh, in a time of famine they didn't even know was coming. So this is the prototypical example of how God's providence works in our lives. But what we don't realize sometimes is that this example of providence is also tied into the provision of Christ himself. Because when Joseph saved his family, he saved his older brother Judah. And that name Judah shows up in the book of Matthew. Just before our text today, there's a there's a genealogy. Like a list of names going all through the generations of Joseph's family. And there are some highlights. I'm going to show them to you. The first one is Judah. Uh, in verses 2 and 3, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah. So, so Joseph saved that whole family. And Judah, then his line goes down. His great, 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 great grandson is King David. Verses 5 and 6, we see there the David the king. And his great, 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 great grandson, if you go all the way down, is Joseph. Look again, look at verses 15 and 16. And Eliud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Mathen, Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. So, why is this important? Because last week uh, we heard that Jesus would sit on the throne of David, we heard that he would reign over the house of Jacob we also heard that he would be conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so there's a bit of a mystery as to how Jesus could legitimately sit on the throne of David if he actually wasn't from the line of David. You know, to, to be a king, you need to be in the line of secession. Um, if you, if you, you remember when Queen Elizabeth died, my my news feed, all the news articles showed uh, the new line of succession for the House of Windsor. And they had, you know, King Charles and then uh, Prince William and all his kids and Prince Harry all the way down to the Corgis. Everyone was part of it. (laughs) So we would know who was next in line to the throne. It's important. You, You couldn't be in line to the throne unless you were part of the family. And so Jesus, Jesus wasn't actually technically part of the family. He didn't have like a fleshly line. So how would it be possible? Here in the book of Matthew, we have the answer. The words of the angel tell us. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. See, what would, what would be the result of Joseph, son of David, taking Mary as his wife? She would legally be part of his family. And all of her children would then be part of his family line. And so this is how Jesus rightly claims the lineage of David. He is adopted into the house of Jacob by Joseph. And this is also why Joseph is, is instructed to name the child. Not just because God wanted to make sure Jesus had a, a great name, a meaningful name, Jesus, but because when a father names a child, he's claiming that child as his own. So, so here, here's the point. There are 42 generations from Abraham to, Joseph, uh, to Jesus. Thousands of years. Uh, uh, tens of thousands of life events. Millions of ways that things could have gone off track, but all of it served the purpose of God to bring a savior and a king for his people. His providence is absolutely meticulous. Every event orchestrated to fulfill his purposes. Down to the cupbearer who finally remembers there's this guy, Joseph, in prison who could interpret dreams and is brought to the fore to be put in the right place. His providence is gloriously good. Even the wickedness of Joseph's brothers was used for good. This is why the verse ringing in our ears is Romans eight twenty eight. All things work together for good for those who love God. This is, this is the enormous truth that supports the story of Christmas. But it doesn't only support the story of Christmas. It supports every story that God is writing in all of our lives. Because remember, Mary and Joseph were actual people. So for them, it wasn't the Christmas story. It was just the, their life story. Joseph was wrestling with sleepless nights trying to figure out what was going. He didn't know that he'd be on Christmas cards one day in like a nice nativity scene. He didn't know all the stuff that would happen. He was just like, I don't know what I'm going to do. This, this woman I was supposed to marry is with child. How, he's just figuring it out and God is working through him. That's the same thing that is happening for us. I, do, I don't think we'll be on cards one day. But the sovereignty part and God working things out part, that is exactly the same. So that's the big truth, that God is providentially at work in a meticulous way, always for our good. So, how should we respond? What are the implications for us? The next point is this, in light of this, we shouldn't let fear control us. I say that because there's fear mentioned in our text. Actually, every time an angel shows up, right, people are fearful. But if you notice, in this text, it's not really about the angel, Look at verse 20 again. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. So the angel there gives us some insight into the main thing that probably would have held Joseph back from doing what God is telling him to do. And that's fear. And that's not surprising. Like given what he was being asked to do or told to do, you could see there'd be some real reason to fear there. Uh, His view of his life in the, in the, you know, simple box of Nazareth, working the land, being a carpenter, was just blown all out of whack. To, to say yes to this meant opening the door to all sorts of things that are unknown, uncertain, potentially threatening and dangerous. And if we look at his life from the time that he says yes to this, that's actually what happens. I mean, he's going to Bethlehem with a pregnant wife, has to find somewhere for her to have, to have the baby, I mean, it's a great night, there's angels, there's a star, it's, it's fantastic. But after that, things get difficult. I mean, the wise men come, they give them some gifts, that's good. But then an angel comes and says, look, you have to flee the country. Herod is, is, wants to kill your son. So imagine that. We have, Honey, we have to go to Egypt. Do you know anyone there? Can you call your sister? How, that's a big change, right? You end up there... Think of the practicalities of that. With a young family, the language is different. You have to find some way to make a living and you maybe just start to get established and then the angel comes and says, now you got to go back. So he goes back to Nazareth, tries to, hey, remember, can I have the lease on that land again? It's, it's all difficult. It's all hard. And added to that are the normal fears that any parent would have, which is not being able to care well for your Your children, not having the wisdom you need, the the resources you need. And and on top of that, he has to be the father to the Messiah. There's a lot of reasons to fear. But the words of the angel to Joseph are simple and they're forceful. Joseph, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Joseph, do not fear to walk down the path that God has chosen for you. Why? Because it's God's path. Because... His meticulous providence is orchestrating every step. Because, Joseph, God is working for your good. Because, Joseph, God, God is with you. That's the whole point of what's going on here in the story of Christmas. Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the truth that surrounds the story itself and what's going on in Joseph's life, and it's, it's not just for Joseph. See, many of us really do struggle to walk with Jesus without a sense of fear. Fear, in a sense, controls a lot of the the ways that we react. And there's some probably legitimate reasons why we would be fearful, right? Things that pressures in our life, maybe from outside, maybe from within us, opposition, certain things, uncertainties. But I think if we had an angel show up tonight in our dream and just say to us, look, look, do not fear, uh, even if we believed it was an angel, it would still be hard to do it. Like to actually wake up in the morning and be like, well, I'm just going to push that fear aside, because the fears, they really are rooted deeply in kind of the way that we respond to our lives. We, fear, of, fear of being different shapes how we dress, how we behave. Fear of failure brings anxiety and insecurity. Uh, fear of discomfort makes us, makes us greedy, makes us lazy, makes us always chase after the immediate pleasures of life. Fear of uncertainty makes us try to control everything and everyone. And in light of what we're seeing here, we should be asking ourselves some questions. Like, why is that? Why, why in light of what we see here clearly in the Bible about who God is, why is it that we fear so much? Why is it that we allow fear to control so much of our lives when it's pretty clear that God is sovereign over everything? And I think the answer must be that that even though we know these things about God, we, we forget them uh, in, in a functional way. Like we forget in a practical way, like when we're living our lives, we really forget that God is powerful and that he loves us. First uh, John 4.18 uh, says it this way, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So to be not perfected in love means to kind of forget who God is, to think that he's maybe interacting with us in in some sort of punishment or harshness or neglect or whatever it might be. But to be perfect in love means that we feel in the deepest recesses of our heart and our mind that God actually loves us and and that we receive that love in a natural and, and almost effortless way, just like breathing. If you think of breathing, we receive the the, the benefits of oxygen without even really thinking about it. We just, we're just breathing all the time and our, our body is nourished. We get exactly what we need. That's how it should be for us as Christians. That in every, every situation, every element of conflict, whatever it is that we, we breathe in and there's just a sense of certainty and peacefulness of knowing that even in the midst of this, we are loved by God, that he's for us, that he's caring for us, that whatever this is, God is still going to use it for our good. And so instead of fear controlling us, the love of God can shape us, can can inform us and enable us then to step out in, in obedience, which is the, the third thing. In light of this truth that God is meticulously providentially sovereign, that He's caring for us, we we should do what He says. One of the reasons I love Joseph is that even though he didn't say very much, he he did a lot. Uh, If you look at the difference between Mary and Joseph, Mary seems to be very verbal. Uh, She said some very powerful words in response to the angel right, of, of what she would do. But even more than that, after she visits her, her cousin Elizabeth, she, she sings a song, the Magnificat in, in Luke, and the song is amazing. It's filled with, it's like poetic, it's got all this imagery, it's all speaking about her child and, and what God is doing through. I mean, it's, it's really amazing uh, in the relationship. It seems like Mary would be the much more verbal one. Ladies, maybe you can identify with that. Joseph, not so much. There are no words of Joseph recorded in the Bible, uh, none, uh, but we see what he did. Okay, so Joseph isn't a guy who's going to say very much, but he he does a lot. Uh, you don't have to keep elbowing your, your husband wives. You can just let him receive this. Um, okay, here's what uh, Matthew 1, 24 and twenty five. When Joseph woke up from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So. Joseph just did what he was told to do. Took Mary, um, claimed Jesus as his son, fulfilled the prophecies of God, made a way for Jesus to legitimately sit on the throne of David. He didn't say much, but he did a lot. And the application for us, I think, can be very simple. Uh, I think I'm going to put it in the form of a question, which is simply this. Are there things that God has told us to do, but we haven't done it yet? Because I think if we're honest, we'd say that, there probably are some things that God has told us to do, but we haven't yet done it. We've, we've been reluctant. I think that may, I'm, I'm going to think of two main categories of things that God has said to us that maybe we haven't done. In the first category, I'm thinking of things that are specific for us as individuals. Like things that the Spirit of God, if you're a Christian, filled with the Spirit of God, has laid on your heart, but you, you haven't yet done it. And there's been lots of times like that in my life. Uh, you could think of people that the Lord has laid on your heart, people in your life, and you have a sense, you know, I should really go talk to that person. I should really ask if, if I could pray for them. But you have it because, you know, it's a little weird, a little awkward. Usually, you talk about the Canucks, you talk about the weather, you don't usually pray for this person in your life, this neighbor, this coworker. That would, that would be weird. There's a sense of fear there. And yet you, you know because the Bible says, because the Spirit is telling you that we should love people around you more than just the superficialities of life. But you're resisting. We, we all tend to resist that kind of thing. Maybe it's, a, uh, maybe it's something that a life change, that you're just feeling like, I really think I need to make this change in my life, a pattern in my life, unhealthy rhythms, whatever it is, and yet you just there's resistance there because maybe you kind of like those things that are leading you into a bad place. There's some sense of immediate pleasure, and so you're resisting The Holy Spirit has been given to us so that we would confess our sin, but we resist. There's so many specific things for us about our lives that God is speaking into, and and we just don't obey. And we're hearing here that, man, if we really believe that God loves us, why would we not obey? But I think there's another category of words, and these words are not for us specifically as individuals, but just for for everyone. Uh, Like there's a lot of words in the Bible, especially the New Testament to Christians, that isn't like person specific. Just everyone should do this. And yet a lot of those things we, we don't tend to actually do. Here's just a couple of examples. Philippians 4.4 4 says rejoice always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's not speaking to a specific group of people or specific circumstances. It's saying all the time rejoice. I don't, I don't do this. You can ask the people in my life. There are times when I am not manifesting a sense of joy. Why? Because... On one level, I'm just being disobedient, but the reason for that is probably because I haven't done the work of reminding myself, even in this moment, in this day, whatever it is, I actually do have reason for joy in light of who Christ is in my life. There's some work to be done there, but that's the work of obedience, of remembering and, and following the words that God has said for us. Here's another one, Matthew eighteen twenty one. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? And I forgive him as many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times, meaning all the time. God's word, clear word that we are to obey is to forgive the people in our lives. And yet that's we don't do that. We harbor resentment, we harbor grudges. There's there's anger that persists, and there's some work to be done there, but it's a work of obedience to remind ourselves of the grace that we've received and to actually extend forgiveness. doesn't mean the relationship is exactly the same, but it does mean that we are working hard so that we get to a place of, of actually forgiving the people around us. That's, that's simply a command on us all the time. Uh, here's one more. 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. We saw a great example of this with Joseph, the Potiphar's wife. He literally fleed an opportunity for a sexual encounter for a woman who wasn't... His wife, the, uh, the thing I love about that is that he was ready. You could tell that Joseph uh, had not been entertaining sexual thoughts for Potiphar's wife. He had not put himself in a place of temptation. He was ready to flee. He had done the work ahead of time of trying to be obedient. It certainly seems that way because as soon as the opportunity came, he w- it didn't even seem like he was tempted. He was gone. That, that's, that's a work of obedience that we should all be doing. That we are guilty, that I am guilty of, of not pursuing that in my own mind's eye, before even an opportunity arises. So here's the question. What's the difference between people uh, who hear the word of God and people who actually do it? I think the defining difference is what you think about God. If you you actually believe that he is sovereign, that he is in control, that he has authority over your life, and that he is for your good then when you hear words from him and there's commands that kind of push in a way that you're not comfortable with, you have an answer as to to why you should actually obey. He's in control of everything. He loves me. He's working everything out for my good. Why would this be any different? Even if it's hard. Even if it's uncomfortable. But if we have the idea that maybe God is just trying to use us or manipulate us, sometimes in Christian culture, we just think, look, they just... The Christians around, we don't really care. They just want everyone to look a certain way or do a certain thing. If we don't really think that God is for us, then it's gonna be a lot harder to to hear any word and actually change our lives. It really does all come down to, do we believe that God's providence is at work, that his his love for us is at work, and that the things he's calling us to are are for our good? Because the truth is, A life of obedience to God is always going to be filled with hardship and risks. Uh, Not because God is neglectful, not because he's powerless, but because he's accomplishing great things in us and through us. Hard things, difficult things, redemptive things. So the life of a Christian is is going to be difficult. That's what Joseph shows us. He was obedient, he was faithful, but it, it was hard. What we are reminded of throughout the Bible is that there's a tension that should exist for us as Christians where we are called to hard things and yet we do them with a sense of of deep settledness and peace within us. And the thing that's hard about this is that it's it's the opposite of the world. Okay, the world does it the other way where we like to have the peace on on the outside, the sense of peace. And to illustrate this, I'm gonna show you... uh, Something that may seem like it doesn't fit, but bear with me for a moment. Uh, You see, I was listening to a podcast recently called Articles of Interest. It's uh, about men's fashion. I know, uh, you know, looking at me, it just doesn't seem like I would have any business listening to that kind of a podcast, but uh, it's an interesting look. They trace kind of the Ivy preppy look down through the ages in US history and tie it all together. It's quite fascinating. But here's, here's the part that gripped me, okay? Uh, there's a woman who wrote a handbook called the Preppy Handbook, okay? Which is, just sounds fantastic. I just want to read it. But let me remind you of what preppy people looked like, okay? Here's some pictures, just to, in our mind's eye, okay? Uh, some old school prepsters, and of course, Carlton Banks, uh, who is the poster child. Now, just look, look at the, not just the clothes they're wearing, but the way that they're wearing them. Look Look at the, the kind of nonchalant, like just sweater over the shoulders, right? These are people who are at ease with their lives. And that, that's the thing that really gripped me. Because what the interviewer did, asked the person who wrote the Preppy handbook, like what, what is Preppy all about? And, and it's interesting, look at her answer. Here, I'm going to quote it for you. Uh, she said this, Preppy, what is it? It's, it's a desire to look like you're at ease. I think that's it more than anything. It's not to look rich, it's not to look educated, it's not to look smart, it's not to look studied. That that should be the opposite of it. It's to look like your life is easy. You can just sort of slide from one thing to the next, from class to class, from desk to date, to whatever, whatever opportunity presents itself and you'll be okay somehow. And I thought to myself, you know, that really does describe not just the preppy style but clothing in general, right? Why do we wear certain things? is it not so that people will have the sense that we are at ease with our life? Why? Because we're not usually at ease with our life. On the inside, we're a mess. So we want to wear the power suit. We want to wear the sweater. We want to wear whatever so that people will look at us and think, man, they're just, they're just so cool. They're just so put together. That's what, that's what style and clothing does for us. It's on the outside masks the fact that on the inside we're a mess of insecurity and fear and all those kinds of things. But for the Christian life, it's the opposite. See, in the Christian life, people look at us and think, what, how could you live that way? Why would you spend your money that way on other people, on, on the things that God is, why would you give it away? Why would you serve in that way? Why would you follow the call to obedience, to go across the globe, to tell people about this good news of a savior that died 2,000 years ago. Everything about our life, it looks like it should be traumatic and full of fear, and yet on the inside, we're at ease. We're peaceful. Why? Because we know who loves us. We know who's taking care of us. We don't don't need the external trappings. I mean, look, you should wear something nice, okay? Don't get me wrong. But I'm just saying... That 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 isn't the source of our sense of ease in life. It's tied to who God is. That's why we can be anywhere on the globe. That's why we can be destitute, have not a penny to our name, or or filthy rich, and, and that shouldn't change the equilibrium of our mind and our heart, which is that God is for us. God loves us. And if we are absolutely certain about that, then we can live without fear, we can live without worry, and we can live lives of obedience. Even if it leads us further into those things and even if the people in our lives who don't know the Lord are like, what are you doing? Why would you leave that job? Why would you, you have a security, you have a pension. Why would you do that? Why would you go into ministry? Why would you go into missions? Why would you go talk to that person who's so mean to the rest of the office? Why would you do these things that seem to just bring greater hardship in your life? The answer is, I, I'm, not, I'm not tethered to the things of this world. I'm, I'm not unsettled by those things. I have a God who loves me. And who's for me. And in Joseph, we have just a beautiful example of that. Of a man who stepped out into uncertainty simply because it was a word from the Lord. And he did it with faith. He did it with a sense of assurance. And we should do the same. So the three things that we see here, that God's providence is meticulous. It's always for a good. And that, that means we shouldn't let fear control us. And that we should seek to do actually what God says, confident, That if he's saying it, it, it's good for us. That even though it's hard, even though it might be challenging, it it actually is for our good. So I'm gonna close by praying that for us. That in whatever area the spirit is leading you to see where there's maybe a matter of obedience or area of fear that you would be comforted, you would be encouraged, and that we would actually be able to step out in faith following the, the leading of God. Let me pray that for us. Uh, Lord Jesus, I'm so thankful for uh, Joseph, so thankful for his example, just in the testimony of scripture and in the story of Christmas. uh, Lord, what a hard call was placed upon him. And yet by your grace and by your power, he responded with obedience. And he did it in light of the fact that you were the one who was calling him to it. And so I pray for us. I pray, Lord, for those areas of our lives where we have been resistant to be obedient to your word perhaps. Uh, maybe there are people that we've, we've felt that we should go and, and talk to, maybe invite, maybe just, just to know more, yet it's gonna be costly somehow and so we've been reluctant. Maybe there's areas of sin where we just, we just haven't really uh, wanted to confess them openly and yet Lord, you're calling us to that and we know it's a matter of obedience. Would you help us uh, to be obedient, to trust that if you're calling us to this thing, whatever it may be, it is for our good, And I pray, Lord, that uh, we would be people, as a church, that would be people who are at ease with whatever situation you put us in, with whatever people we are around, because our sense of worth, our sense of value is not tied to them or what other people think of us. It's rooted completely in what you've done for us, Jesus. We know we are valued. We know we are loved. Because, God, you sent your own son to die for us, and I pray that that truth would just seep into the marrow of our bones and that we would breathe your love like oxygen and that we would be nourished from it daily. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.